Hello and welcome to the Simungos podcast. This is episode 52 and this is another COVID update. Uh, Alistair McConaughey, who you'll know from before, he's an infectious disease consultant uh, in Glasgow. He's sat down with me again on a Zoom call uh, to give his opinions of where we are now as we approach winter. Uh, there was some connection issues. There's only a very, very slight wobble towards the end in his audio, but the rest is perfectly fine. So I hope you enjoy. Let's jump right in. So, Alistair, here we are again. We're about, I don't know, eight months in, something like that. Um, oh thank you very much for, for, for joining us again. And what's your overall impression now with all the experience that you've had? Uh, where are we now? Can you describe your impressions of it? Uh, the, the way I feel right now is I feel a bit like I did towards the end of March, earlier in the year. So, so we know this is coming. Um, we know there is going to be a sizable increase in admissions. We're already seeing admissions, you know, we're already seeing the, the 60 plus year olds coming in with COVID. Um, I mean, no, it's going to, it's going to challenge the, uh, challenge the service that we have. The, the kind of slightly different perspective, I guess, this time is that I, I know what's in front of me. Uh, I, I know what it's going to look like in terms of the patients. And part of that's good because uh, I'm sure we'll come on to kind of changes about how we manage it. And clearly we've learned a lot about the illness, but part of it is bad because we know the kind of difficult aspects of that and the, you know, the, the less pleasant aspects of that care, the discussions that we're going to have with patients and with relatives about, you know, expectations and, and ceilings of treatment, et cetera. So yeah, it feels a bit like the end of March. I think it, there's been much play of the fact that it's been younger people who've, who've been infected this time in some ways, that, that's not a surprise, you know, the, these people who um, who are, who are going to, you know, congregate in large groups and, and, and spread it amongst themselves. And, and I say that not to demonise, but to just say this is the very nature of being young and growing up. It's, it's what it is. Um, but the kind of French and the, the Spanish experience would suggest that that then leads on to you know, other age groups being infected, which will then be the determinant of, of hospital admissions. So how would you summarise uh, where we are, the number of deaths that we've had, the number of cases that we've had? What, what's been your general experience? Did, did we do well? Did we do better than expected, worse than expected? Um, it's difficult to know, isn't it? I think, I think the primary concern, and, and we need to remember this, the, the primary concern at the start of the, the kind of first wave, if you like, was to protect the NHS and protect the capacity of the NHS. So I think if you if you take that as the aim, I think we we succeeded in terms of managing COVID. We you know we managed to get people in when they needed to come in, um, and we were able to cope with those numbers. I think one of the major lessons from that, though, and I think most people will recognise this from where we are at the minute, is that there are huge negative implications of switching off all the normal stuff that we do, which we did a huge amount of, um, in terms of people now having to catch up uh, with the kind of regular day-to-day -day business of chronic disease management, yourselves and the emergency department having to deal with everything that comes in um, and kind of late presentation of, of a lot of stuff that you can't help but feel 
maybe would have been picked up had we not been in the middle of a pandemic. And I, I think the lessons going forward in terms of dealing with an increase in numbers, which now seems inevitable, um, is that we can't switch everything else off. Uh, we have to be very careful about doing that, but at the same time, need to be able to manage COVID. And with all your experience now uh, treating patients, what, what have we learned about the treatment um, we, I know we touched at the very beginning about the potential for remdesivir. We'd spoken about steroids, I think, in the beginning and thought they mightn't be helpful given our experience with SARS. Yeah. Um, so so what, what, what do we know? What, what, what have we learned? What have you learned about treating patients? So I guess we can start with drug therapy. Yeah, who'd have thought steroids, eh? Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the data from, from SARS and MERS suggested that there wasn't much in the way of benefit from steroids and the, and the concern was that the use of steroids merely prolonged viral shedding so so it didn't become part of treatment but you know good on um, the Oxford group uh, for the big studies that they got up and running and and yeah it would appear that steroids certainly are beneficial what a 25 percent reduction in in mortality is it's a modest effect but it's a significant effect and it's it's by far probably the most useful um drug therapy that we have now for it uh, so yeah standard of practice to give people dexamethasone i think they have to be slightly careful um, big doses of steroids are not without the risks um, it should still be reserved for people who have severe disease. And, and right now we're divine, defining that as those who have an oxygen um, requirement in order to meet their target saturations. There is some concern that starting, it, er, starting high-dose steroids early in disease before it becomes severe may theoretically be detrimental. Um, so I think we have to be careful with X. Um, but yeah, absolutely, anyone with an oxygen requirement who's got COVID, you know, should be on steroids. Um, there's evidence of dexamethasone, there's evidence of hydrocortisone, there are, is indeed some evidence of prednisone as well. I suspect it probably doesn't matter which steroid you give, but um, steroids have an effect. I think the evidence for remdesivir is less clear. Um, it's the, the studies were, were not as well designed. Um, as they, as they were for, for steroids and the other agents that were, were included. Um, the suggestion is that the remdesivir shortens duration of illness. Uh, I know there is more data to come out, and I, I believe there's, there's data in press in the medical literature at the minute regarding remdesivir and, and other measures, um, kind of more long-term things like mortality. Um, but I think the, the effect of remdesivir is is probably more modest than steroids. Um, I th I think the challenge of remdesivir is going to be getting it. Uh, there's clearly, you know, the whole world is looking for it. I think the kind of the American policy on 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 acquiring doses of it has been well publicised. Um, and I think going into things now, it's it's going to be a an availability issue for remdesivir. But in some ways, that that worries me less, um, given its relatively modest effect. Um, there's other things that we do, which are probably just as important as any drugs, if not more important. I, I think we now um, appreciate the value of proning patients and proning 
patients early on wards before they get anywhere near critical care. I think all of us who've looked after COVID uh, now appreciate the, the huge improvement that some patients will get um, in their oxygen saturations merely by proning and the fact that you know proning has an effect that carries on after you've stopped proning. So I think that is a is a very important and very simple thing to do. Although patients who aren't familiar with lying on their bellies often do struggle a wee bit with it. Um, and then there's other things, you know, CPAP. I think we have a much better idea of how we use CPAP and when we use CPAP. Um, there are people that I've looked after who've been on CPAP uh, for a long period of time who ordinarily would have been trying to get them ventilated, but, but you know, in it increasing appreciation that that try and keep people away from ventilators is is probably a good thing for as long as possible because once you get tubed and once you're on IPPV then you are you know you're, you're suddenly in a an awful situation where you need the ventilator but you're going to be ventilated for a long time um, and with all the attendant risks that that come with with being in ITU for 28 days um, so so I think um, there's a definite change in the way that we treat. So uh, I've got some uh, audience questions to ask you a little bit later, but one of them was, and I'll just slip it in now, uh, was from Alistair Ireland, and it was, will remdesivir and DEX keep people out of HDU or ITU? Uh, I think it probably will. I think DEX will. I think steroids will to some extent. Um I, th I think the evidence for that is is good. Uh, the evidence that remdesivir will do that, um, I think, is not there. I think remdesivir, what evidence we have at present, suggests that it shortens disease or shortens duration of of symptoms. Um, there has not been a clear improvement in kind of critical care admission or indeed mortality at present as we sit. Uh, for remdesivir, it's not clear. Um, some people are, you know, there is some suggestion that it does reduce mortality, but I don't think that's been proven in, you know, in a properly powered study to to answer that question. So I think I think the other piece of information we have has come from a, an international collaboration called Isaric. Um, one of my colleagues, Tony Ho, has been heading up uh, certainly, you know, a lot of the data from the UK, and and they've looked at different aspects of patients which correlate with levels of mortality and have produced a, a kind of calculator based on I think about 58,000 admissions um, in the UK with with COVID and, and what they have done is validate a, a calculator which will allow you to plug in metrics such as the patient's age, their number of comorbidities, um, their oxygen saturations, their urea, their CRP, um, and you can plug that in and that will give you an idea of their in-hospital uh, mortality. It gives you a score which then translates into kind of low, medium, high-risk mortality. So I think that is incredibly useful for looking after patients in the hospital. It's important to say it's been validated for patients who are admitted to hospital. It's not validated for use prior to admission, so we shouldn't be using it to to try and work out, you know, someone's risk of mortality if they're diagnosed in the community, although 
I suspect that work is being looked at. Um, but I think what that data does do is, as a clinician looking after patients with COVID, it, it gives me some really hard data to have what are difficult discussions with patients and relatives about a, the kind of expectations of treatment, what their expectations are, you know, what ceilings of treatment are in as much as use of ventilation, use of HTU, use of CPAP, these sort of things. So I think we have a much better handle on, on who does badly with COVID. Um, and I think we have some, some kind of hard figures now which will allow us to actually have those discussions in, in, you know, in a, a much better frame with, with patients and relatives. And I would advise anyone to, to look that up. It was published in the BMJ uh, last month. Um, it's the Isaric 4C Consortium, and it's, it's really useful data. Now, where are we with a vaccine? And I know this is a very difficult question as well. There's obviously wildly varying opinions of when one will be available from the Trumpian, it's going to be available in the next six weeks, through to others who think it's still a year or two away, certainly in significant enough doses. Um, anything you could add to that? Are you aware of any, any kind of more pragmatic thoughts on vaccine availability? Yeah, I've got my views. I, I, th I think the simple answer, and I'm afraid this might be an answer to a lot of the questions, is going to be we simply don't know, and a lot of it is conjecture. So what do we know about vaccines? We know, certainly, again, that the Oxford vaccine would appear to be immunogenic. That's been published. Um, it would appear to induce an antibody response. There has been suggest some suggestion as well that it um, gives you a T-cell response, which is really interesting. Um, because T cells would T cell response would seem to be central uh, to how we handle this virus. So we know it's immunogenic, and I suspect there is data for the other vaccines that are that are going on, or vaccine studies that are going on around the world. The challenge is going to be what does that mean? What does that immunogenity mean? So so we can produce antibodies against the virus. What what is it that that does? Does it stop you catching the virus? or does it potentially give you an ability to ameliorate the severity of disease, such as flu vaccine? You know, we know that flu vaccine is incredibly effective at stopping you dying from flu. It's very good at stopping you being admitted to hospital with flu. It's not that good at stopping you catching flu. Um, and that's, that's, and when people say the flu vaccine doesn't work, well, no, it does work, it stops you dying. But what they're meaning is it's not very good at stopping you catching the illness. So I suspect, and this is purely my, my suspicion, is that, that a COVID vaccine will do something similar. It'll, it'll give you less severe disease, um, but may not be overly good at preventing you from catching it. And the reason I say that is that what you really want to prevent you catching it is proper mucosal, you know, upper respiratory mucosal immunity. And I think any vaccine is going to struggle in inducing that. There is also the, the concern, and this is the reason for doing properly monitored studies, is that is a theoretical reason that it may potentiate disease if we're, if we're suggesting that one of the reasons that people come to harm from COVID is because of a kind of in the lung immunological response to virus, then you could theorise that, you know, that a vaccine may potentiate that, but we don't know that. I, I think that's unlikely. Um, 
my reading of the vaccine stuff is that it'll be good, but it'll be good at stopping people dying of the illness as opposed to stopping them catching it. But of course, we have other ways that we can stop people catching it. <laughs> so in, I think in our last episode, we touched on PPE and the, you know, the, there was a bit of media, let's say, attention around whether it was good enough, the fear about it. Now, my experience, and I, I hope I don't say anything that's, that's wrong, but my, my experience is that us in my department have obviously been working very closely with each other, very hard to socially distance enough. We've obviously been surrounded by it quite a lot. And actually, I don't think any at all of, of our staff have contracted COVID, certainly within our department. I know of a few who've contracted it outside of work. Um, so it would lead me in my limited experience to believe that the PP is working, our precautions are working. We've been able to to, to keep safe. Um, is that your experience? Anything you'd like to say about PP um, and and maybe how that will affect other people's kind of opinions? And yeah, I I mean I I share your view. I I I think that the PPE we have been using has worked in preventing infection of healthcare workers. Um, I think. It's a multifaceted approach, and I think that probably one of the most effective things is, is regular hand washing and being very careful about washing your hands, wearing gloves and aprons, washing your hands afterwards. Yeah, the masks help. I've always wondered how much of the effect of a mask is to stop you touching your mucosal surfaces with your hands that might be contaminated versus actually working as a, a kind of barrier, if you like. Um, but my my feeling is that the PPE has worked. We I think we can all recognise that colleagues who've contracted COVID are probably as likely, if not more likely, to catch it from colleagues as they are from their patients. And I think that in part will relate to us socially interacting with our colleagues outside of a clinical area. I think in clinical areas, we're very conscious of it. We're all washing our hands, we're wearing masks, we're doing all the stuff. But then you get into offices or everybody goes for lunch together and suddenly you're within two metres of each other, you're chatting away, you're not paying the same attention uh, to to protecting yourself and protecting others. And uh, yeah, I I think the PP works. I have faith in the PP. I've said this from the start. Um, and I think that we have to be very careful as clinicians that we don't allow our concern about us catching this from patients to have a significant negative impact on what we do when we look after patients. Um, and I, I would recognise that potential as an ID physician from looking after patients with infection. You often see patients who, and this is out with COVID, um, you see patients who've not had best care because of clinicians' concerns about their own personal safety. And again, I'm not saying that to criticise. I think it is a natural response. Um, I think fear is one of the strongest emotions that we have. But I think we have a professional duty to make sure that that we, we don't allow these sort of fears to 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 cloud our clinical judgment. Because after all, risk is a spectrum, you know, risk is not black and white. And I think I think it is unreasonable for for us as healthcare workers to expect zero risk. And some of the discussions that have been led in the media have come from that background about 
you know, zero risk. There's always going to be a risk. And what we do puts us at risk in the same way that being a police officer or being a fire officer puts you at risk. So I, I think we we have to accept an element an element of risk, but accept that we and everybody else has a duty to mitigate that risk as much as possible. Okay, well, we asked around before this um, interview uh, some of my colleagues and a few people on Twitter just for some questions. So do you mind if we go through a few quick fire, there are a few random Kind of, there's no, yeah, uh, there's no particular pattern, just a few random questions. But let's start off with Alistair Ireland had a few questions. He wanted to know what, uh, about our precautions and will that mean less influenza uh, this winter? I think flu and flu season is going to be fascinating. Um, so what do we know about flu? It's an envelope virus. So all the hand washing and face masks and social distancing will be very effective. Um, or are likely to be very effective at preventing flu transmission. That's the good thing. Um, and if you look at the Southern Hemisphere data, so if you look at data from South Africa, data from Australia, they really didn't report much in the way of influenza during their flu season. The caveats to that are, I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder how much flu testing Australia and South Africa were doing when they were in the midst of COVID numbers, you know, in the midst of a COVID pandemic, um, probably similar to where we were about April, May. So um, I suspect that they weren't doing as much flu testing as they would do annually. So there will be a huge observer bias to that. So I think we have to take that reassurance with a pinch of salt. Um, the other thing with flu is we know that flu will co-infect with other respiratory viruses. We know co-infect respiratory bacteria as well. So just because someone has COVID doesn't mean they can't have flu, and just because someone has flu doesn't mean they can't have COVID. Um, they could easily have both. And I, one of my fears going into the winter is that we assume that everybody with a respiratory virus has COVID, um, and we lose sight of other respiratory viruses, and the main one of those that would worry me with flu. If you give people with flu pneumonitis high doses of steroids, they have a less good outcome. They have a poorer outcome. So, so we have to be we have to be careful with flu this year. Um, I think we need to maintain an ability to test people for flu as well as COVID. Um, and I suspect I'll be giving a lot of people oseltamivir uh, this year because I think clinically it's going to be very difficult to to differentiate the two illnesses. Um, but yes, the precautions should have an effect on flu. Okay, Alistair, second question is, how long can people be positive for, and are they really infectious if testing positive? Okay, so let's, let's, let's take this back to basics. What, what is the test testing for? Um, so the test that we're using now and have been using since the start is a PCR, reverse transcriptase PCR, looking for an RNA of the virus. Very sensitive, um, very specific test. So just because you can detect RNA doesn't necessarily mean that that person is infective because it doesn't tell you whether that RNA belongs to a live organism or a dead organism. And we don't really know the infectious dose of, uh, of this virus. We know that people can stay PCR positive for weeks after infection, particularly patients with more severe disease, particularly patients who are immunocompromised, 
um, will continue to excrete RNA and have detectable RNA for a long time after illness. However, it tends to be RNA at very low levels in terms of the kind of quantitative assessment of that. No one, or shouldn't say no one because I'm sure someone has, but it is incredibly rare for anyone to be able to culture live virus in someone beyond 10 days of illness. So 10, beyond 10 days after the onset of illness. And certainly it would be reasonable to suggest the ability to culture virus is a surrogate for infectivity. So, and then if you add into that, there's a lot of data. We know the kind of natural history of the illness. We know how it infects. There's a lot of cruise ship data, a lot of care home data. And we know that people are probably most infectious just before they develop symptoms. So when they're pre-symptomatic and probably for the first five or six days of illness is the period of time when people are most infective. So people are infective early in illness and become less infective um, as, as they move on beyond the onset of their illness. So I think, I think the answer to the question is, is, is again, unfortunately, again, we don't know, but my reading of it would be that, yes, people can stay positive for a long time, but they are probably not infected to other people beyond 10 days of illness. Fantastic. Um, Alistair's final question, is CPR an aerosol generating procedure? Wow. So, so there's, a, there's a lot behind that question. Uh, the straight answer to that question is we don't know. Um, the problem with a lot of what has been called science throughout this is actually consensus opinion at best, expert opinion. Um, and that's why, and we all know in medicine, you know, if you get two groups of experts and ask them the same question, the likelihood is that you will get two different answers. And that's, and that's what has been the centre of discussions around whether CPR is an aerosol generating procedure. So you can take the, the kind of, UK health authorities approach, which is there's no evidence that it's an AGP and therefore given the nature of CPR, we shouldn't assume that it is. Or you can take the Resuscitation Council UK's approach, which is there's no evidence that it isn't an AGP and therefore we should regard it as an AGP. I think, you know, you can argue, you can argue the toss between the two of those. I would rather approach it as a clinician um, and CPR is a time-sensitive intervention. So if someone requires CPR um, and you're in a clinical situation on a ward where you're already wearing a mask, you know what? If you've got a surgical mask on and you need to bang on a pair of gloves and a plastic apron and go in there and do CPR, that's what you should do. You put out in a rest call and you do the CPR whilst everybody else, fair enough, puts on uh, respiratory PPE because respiratory PPE, if you're going to wear it and you're going to put it on properly, it's going to take several minutes for you to don appropriately. What we must not do is all stand outside someone's room who's suffered a cardiac arrest for three or four minutes, putting on our PPE before anybody goes in and administers a potentially life-saving, time-sensitive intervention. And some of the arguments against that have been if you've got COVID and you have a cardiac arrest, your outcomes are terrible. Yep, absolutely. Um, a lot of the people who are going to run into problems with COVID will be older and probably if they get to the point where they suffer cardiac arrest, CPR 
is unlikely to be a successful intervention. But that's only looking at it from one dimension. What about the 33-year-old with acute severe asthma who may or may not have COVID, but they've got a respiratory infection, you don't know the result yet. They blow attention pneumothorax and they have cardiac arrest. Are we all really gonna stand outside that room putting on respiratory PPE before we go in? No, someone goes in, does what they need to do, and then once everybody else comes in with PPE on, that person can then leave and put on proper PPE or go and do whatever they need to do. So I think we, the, the question underlying that, I think is more intricate. And I think my personal view is that we should not be withholding CPR from people who require it because of fear about COVID. Um, I think there are ways of mitigating that risk. Okay, our next uh, audience uh, question comes from John Paul Lockery, and he mentions that there has been some reporting of evidence of aerosol spread without specific aerosol-generating procedures. Any implications for PPE and staff protection as well as for vulnerable patients? Yeah, again, there's all sorts of modelling, and it's, you know, we're, we're really suffering from a lack of, proper good scientific studies that are designed well to answer specific questions and so what we're seeing is a lot of data um, which isn't you know of, of high level evidence it's probably no surprise that you can generate aerosols without agps uh, fecal aerosols interestingly have been well described um, we know this for coronaviruses we know that um, we know you can culture virus COVID from people's stools. We know that other coronaviruses, uh, particularly MERS and SARS, some of the big outbreaks have related to super spreaders and the suggestion has been that that may be from uh, fecal um, aerosolization in sewage and, and what have you. Um, so in some ways it's not a surprise. I'm sure it does happen. Um, I don't think, given what we've already discussed about PPE, that it happens frequently enough that we need to change our current advice in terms of, of PPE. I think the risk is low. And let's let's not forget that our current advice of PPE is not having zero effect. It's just not having the same high level effect that wearing a, an FFP3 or an N95 mask would afford you. Um, but the risk is low. So I think the greater risk is that we allow concern about these things to stop us providing care for our patients. Uh, John Paul also has a second one. He, he describes a little scenario. He says, person A has COVID in April, which is PCR positive, and positive antibodies shortly after, but they are now undetectable or have undetectable antibodies. Do we yet know what this means for immunity and what are the implications for vaccination? We're back to vaccines. <laughs> no, it's a great question, and it's and it's a really important fact. I mean, again, the honest answer is no. I'm not sure what if we do know. Let's, I mean, let's look. If if we are detecting antibodies in someone from any infection or any, as a result of any vaccine, we're looking at one dimension of the immune response to that pathogen, and what is a multi-dimensional immune response. So just because you haven't got antibodies doesn't mean that you won't have memory t-cell responses etc these things are just much more difficult to measure whereas antibodies are, are probably a more straightforward thing to measure so we use it as a surrogate 
for that immune response. So let's, you know, let's take a parallel hep B vaccine we give to people. We know that a small percentage of people will be non-responders to hep B, but there's a feeling that they probably still have some immune response. Um, so, you know, we just don't know. And I, I think the antibody tests are heavily, heavily flawed. Um, it depends on what you measure. Do you measure IgM early? Do you measure it later? Do you measure IgG early? Do you measure it later? Do you measure IgA? If you look at antibody testing that uses a combination of all three of these, then it appears to pick up antibodies for longer. There's lots of different ways of, you know, measuring for antibodies means different things, and you know, to different groups. So there's a heterogeneity to that. So I don't think we know what it means in terms of immunity. My reading of it would be, this is what coronaviruses do when they first infect humans. This is very much my personal interpretation. So, so we, the coronaviruses that cause seasonal colds in us, we, as organisms, largely manage to isolate those viruses to our upper respiratory tract. Um, and I suspect we do that from having been exposed to these viruses over years and years and years of seasonal flu, sorry, seasonal colds. Um, and therefore our immune response allows us to isolate that infection to our upper respiratory tract, which gives us chorizo symptoms of seasonal cold. But when a novel coronavirus appears, it's not going to do that because we don't have that immune response and it takes it will take multiple hits and multiple infections i suspect in order to generate that immune response which allows us to turn covid-19 into a seasonal cold virus and clearly vaccination affords us an ability to augment that response and perhaps make it happen a bit quicker does that make sense that that that's that's very much my my very personal reading of the situation. McDon on Twitter asks, was there any significant increase in the number of patients with other infectious diseases such as C. difficile as a direct result of inability to isolate? Uh, they found in their hospital that they had to use a hierarchy of conditions to determine single room allocation. So I presume he means some people who would have been isolated weren't being isolated and did that impact on the spread of those infections? No, I've not seen any data to suggest that they had uh, particularly higher rates of, of, of other other infections. I've seen a bit, I, I have an interest in C. diff and, and recurrent C. diff. I've certainly seen a bit more C. diff recently. I suspect it probably relates to increased antibiotic use in the context of, of COVID-19 uh, rather than than anything else, um, particularly from a C. diff point of view, about a quarter of it is community-acquired nowadays. Um, and so it shows you the relationship to, to antibiotic use. Um, I know there has been an increase in infections in ITU, line infections, resistant gram-negatives, but again, it's what you'd expect when you've got a huge population of people who are ventilated for three, four weeks rather than three or four days. Uh, so it just reflects the fact that these people have got lines in, they're getting renal support and all the rest of it. So, so I'm, I'm not aware of a, a kind of increase across the board. And I think that using a hierarchy of conditions is an entirely appropriate way of managing a limited resource. So let's face it, COVID is far more infective than C, C. diff and has, you know, 
greater implications for some people. Stephen Boyce has a couple of questions. Uh, the first one is, obviously, our, our approach is seems to be suppress until we have a vaccine available. Uh, in the in the off chance that a vaccine never materializes or never is a, is as effective as what we hope it will be, is there a plan B or a plan C or what can we expect? Yeah, I don't know. I'm obviously not in in government. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good question. Would I do any different? I think our politicians have actually done quite well. Um, I have to say, I I think, um, and I say that from you know kind of point of view of both Westminster and Edinburgh I I I think I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to approach to this um, I think the important thing in any crisis management as a leader is that you define what it is you're going to do and you do it rather than uh, sit in your hands and get absolutely paralyzed by multiple analyses of the situation um, and I think our politicians have kind of done that quite well um, I really feel for our politicians. I think it's easy as a doctor for me to look at a patient and say, right, this is really complicated, but this is what we're going to do. Whereas our politicians are having to look at health. They're having to look at um, effects on the economy. They're having to look at causing more poverty. They're having to look at open schools. They're having to deal with an entire generation of young people who are... Um, going to potentially have their education compromised by this. I mean, they have so many different metrics to look at in order to form a plan. And I I just I don't know about everybody else, but I, I'm not sure I'd be able to cope with that. So so hats off to them. Um, I, I don't think it's a right, a right or wrong answer. I think we just have to, we have to adapt. And you know what? Some of the best plans that have ever been made in history have come from, from failing. Uh, failing is an incredibly good teacher um, and I think that managing COVID going forward we've, we've learned a lot of lessons and I think if our politicians learn those lessons and allow those lessons to to shape what they do from here on in which I get the impression they are um, I think that's all we can expect so I, I'm not sure if there's a plan B or plan C <laughs> um, I suspect the plan by its nature will be largely made up as we go along. Um, the last question, uh, it's a bit of a multi-layered question, but uh, the first part of it is, what is your opinion on the current situation with students? Now, th there seems to be a lot of sympathy for the students. They seem to be kind of disproportionately impacted at the moment in terms of jobs, education, you know, the next few years of their lives, uh, you know, for a disease that probably impacts them less than everyone else. Is it not possible to shield those that need to be shielded and less let the rest of the population take a sensible kind of cautious approach? Is that moving into a more of a Swedish type of approach? So well, what are your thoughts on the kind of student impact and, and just our general approach and, and our comparison to Sweden? I don't know if I can mix that in one question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I, I really feel for for younger people in this. And I, I think they, they undoubtedly have been heavily, heavily affected by this. Their education has changed, be that school, be that uh, university. Um, they, you know, those years of your life, I mean, you know, most of us have been through them now, um, are heavily based on you learning 
social interactions, social norms, meeting people, making mistakes, learning from that. And I, I really worry that students just now have been demonised slightly. Um, and I, I think that's unfair. And I think it's just totally the wrong thing to do. We know that this increase in cases that we're seeing now initially started out in younger age groups, I think 15 to 24 year olds were the, the kind of demographic that, that showed the, the huge increase. But that's going to happen because they've been locked down. We've suddenly let them out. They're congregating in groups. They're going to they're going to spread COVID. And you're right. You know the chances of them coming to harm from it are you know less than less than one percent. So, um, so in some ways, you know what's what's the issue? The issue is, I guess, that they will undoubtedly be a nidus of infection to allow spread to older members of society. Um, and certainly now we're starting to see the you know 60 year old plus people being admitted to hospital with COVID. And if you look at the French and the Spanish evidence, then where they are now started with younger people being infected to them, presumably it spread to older age groups and all the way up. But that's an issue for all age groups of society, not just young people. Um, and we can't compromise their world simply to protect everybody else. Asking everybody to shield who is at risk, there's two complications in that. Who's at risk? Um, you know, men over the age of 60 with vascular disease, they're amongst the highest risk individuals for COVID um, and make up a sizable proportion, certainly in the west of Scotland where I live and work. So it's not as easy as that. It's easy to define people who are getting cancer treatment or people in immunosuppressant drugs and all the rest of it who we shielded the last time. But are these people at particularly higher risk than people with vascular disease? Possibly not. Um, and then anybody over the age of about 70 is at high risk. Is it really fair on them for them to have to shield? I don't think so. I think I the thing I like about the Swedish model, I'm a big fan of the way the Swedes have done this, and I, I, I was a fan right from the beginning. They're basically learning how to live with this virus. They've been misrepresented. A lot of people talk about them trying to develop herd immunity. That is absolutely not um, the Swedish, Swedish model. The Swedish model is about accepting that people are going to die during a pandemic of a respiratory illness. And actually, our ability as a society to stop that is limited. Um, and therefore, you need to learn to live with this virus. And that's what the Swedes have done. So the Swedes had a huge problem in care homes initially. They had um, a very high death rate for people in care homes. And that's tragic. But on a very unemotional and slightly hard-necked approach, that's not a surprise. We, we take a building like a care home, we take a group of people in society who are most at risk of coming to harm from COVID and we put them all in that care home. If COVID then gets into that care home, then it's going to be associated with a very high mortality. And you could say, well, you just need to stop it getting in. Well, that's, that's not easy because these people still need younger people to go in and look after them and provide care for them. So by stopping anybody going in, you compromise care. And we're already seeing that debate in terms of families visiting um, 
elderly relatives and care homes. So I, I don't think it's easy. I think as a society, we need to accept that people are going to die of this and we should do what we can to try and reduce that risk. But it's going to be tragic. It's going to be horrible. But we need to learn to live with it. And what we mustn't do is destroy our economy because that will kill even more people with poverty. What we mustn't do is take an entire generation of young people whose education has been heavily compromised um, by it, because that's going to have a huge knock-on impact in society. What we mustn't do is take members of society, again, principally young people who are on zero-hours contracts and um, not earning a huge amount of money, and make them even more poor by removing their work, etc. I think it's a really difficult, difficult circle to score. And I think the Swedish approach, which largely puts responsibility for your actions back onto people, here's some guidance. We suggest you follow this. If you don't follow it, then there will be consequences. Um, but it's your responsibility to follow it. And I worry slightly in the UK that we have maybe lost, or we've by by putting out diktats, uh, we've 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 kind of removed the individual responsibility slightly, um, or we've removed people's feeling of the right to assess situations and, and act in a responsible way. Um, and I do wonder if we need to kind of trust the public a wee bit more. Uh, because we'll always hear about, you know, those who who flout the regulations, but you know, the majority of people will be will be following them. So I I like the Swedish approach. I like it from the point of view that we are giving individuals responsibility. The question is: Are we too late to adopt that approach? Could you resort to that even now, or are we too far down our particular path? No, I don't think so. Um, Given, given what I said earlier about learning and adapting as you go, um, I don't think so. I think the, you know, the building blocks are there. Uh, people, I think most people know what, what they should be doing. Um, I don't think it is overly complicated in terms of social distancing, uh, hand washing, wearing masks, etc. Um, and as I say, I, I suspect the vast majority of people are are doing it. Um, so I, 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 I don't think it's a it's a massive about turn. I think it's a it's a, it's, it's a relatively subtle change in in the conversations that we're having. But it's about expectations, isn't it? It's about the expectations of our society, and it's about what people who who live in society expect. And that comes down to healthcare because let's not forget the Swedes fund their health and social care um, in a very different way to what we do in the UK. They pay high taxes, and for those incredibly high taxes, they get high public service. Um, I think in the UK, I and this is me getting political now. I, I worry that that we are promising individuals a Scandinavian-style health service, but we're not willing to have the discussion with those individuals about how we pay for that. Um, and, and I think all of us who work in, in healthcare in, in the UK will probably recognise that, that dichotomy, that, that patients' and relatives' expectations are often beyond what the service is actually able to provide for them. But that is driven by the constant talking up of what 
you know, what the NHS can can provide. So I do worry slightly that Sweden had that ability to to absorb an increase, certainly in hospital cases, that we might not have in the UK. Uh, Alistair, thank you so much once again. I don't know if this, I, I suspect this won't be our last <laughs> COVID update. Might be doing this for, for another year or two. Um, but uh, any way you'd like to, to summarise, any way you'd like to finish, anything you'd like to leave us with as we move towards winter? I think it, it's it's probably good to finish on a slightly positive note because I'm aware that uh, um, it's very easy to, to get very down about about the whole thing. I think we 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 know a lot more about the illness. We know how it can present. We have treatments uh, which we know can reduce mortality. Um, and I think we have a lot more data which allows us to have much more rational discussions with patients and relatives. And I think that is all really good. I think the other good thing is that we have appreciated that the rest of the hospital and the rest of primary care and all the other stuff that normally goes on needs to continue. And I think there is a a real awareness of that and a real kind of wish to try and keep that going as much as possible. And I I think that's good. I think it's challenging, you know, if you're a surgeon doing elective surgery, I, I know that your list now are nowhere near what they were pre-COVID because of all the screening and things that need to go on. But at least we're accepting that we can't stop all of that stuff. I think in outpatient management, we've adopted non-face-to-face ways of uh, managing patients, which is probably something that should have been done 10 years ago. Um, and, And now COVID has provided the impetus to do that. Um, so, so I think there's a lot of a lot of positive stuff coming out of this. I do think the winter is going to be challenging. I think um, I think it's going to be long. Um, I think it's going to be challenging in terms of numbers. I think it's going to be challenging clinically in terms of um, trying to differentiate COVID from other respiratory infections, and it's going to be challenging with all the other stuff that will happen in winter because it's winter. If you're an orthopedic surgeon, your ability to turn people who turn people round quickly who fall over and break ankles um, is is impaired, and I think there's a whole bunch of challenges that are coming with that. But I think we we have a better feeling for what we're what we're facing. I think vaccine will have an effect. I think it will happen. I think the 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 kind of early. Um, data would suggest that it is immunogenic, so I suspect it's 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 going to have an effect. Um, we just need the proper studies to to define that. Um, and I think I think the population have a have a better appreciation of of COVID. My only slight worry is that I think we we need to kind of reframe quite subtly the conversations uh, that have been had with the population around their ability and their right to take responsibility and accept the risks that come with that. Um, so, you know, I'm not looking forward to the winter, but I'm relatively positive, if that makes sense. I think probably the overall lesson is that we need to keep doing the things that we've been doing, which are very, very effective. So paying attention to your PPE for your sake, for the sake of your patients, for the sake of 
who you go home to at the end of your shift. Um, and the really simple stuff, washing your hands, wearing a face mask, being careful about touching your face, you know, if, certainly before you've washed your hands and things. So I think the simple stuff works. I think we all get tired. Um, I find myself taking shortcuts in my practice and I have to stop myself and remind myself I'm sure that I am not unusual. I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this will appreciate that they're knackered and they just can't be bothered with this anymore. But you know what? This is this is the way we work and live now and we need to just stick with it. Um, someone commented to me last week that I was uh, being very vigilant in putting alcohol gel in my hands and stuff. This is out with work. And I suddenly thought, Jingzhe, I have, and I'm kind of doing it without thinking about it now. Um, so I think, I think we just, you know, we have to stick with it. This will get better. And we have control over that. You know, we have control over how we protect ourselves and how we protect our patients. And that is what we need to keep doing. Um, but I get that everybody's tired and exhausted, but let's just keep keep control um, if that isn't a toxic phrase nowadays and uh, and just you know stay on it and I think we'll be okay brilliant thank you so much for your time again and and good luck for winter and we'll, no worries. Cheers. we'll, we'll see you we'll see you at some other point over the next few months thank you I'm very sure. much yeah cheers see you later